Tune Review, Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M. Or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 This is from The National on Friday the 12th of January 2024. From the news section. Glasgow named one of the best comeback towns in the UK. This article is written by Andrew Smart. Glasgow has been named one of the best and most exciting comeback towns in the UK over the rebirth of the city's Clydeside area. The list looked at several spots across Britain including Hull and Plymouth, which have demonstrated an ability to evolve following an era of decline. Glasgow, which was at the top of the list, was praised for its ability to build something bigger and better in the wake of de-industrialisation. Speaking of the comeback town, iNews, which compiled the UK list, said, Glasgow's evolution is the epitome of a comeback. Its post-Second World War blight, once the bottom fell out of the shipbuilding business that had previously rendered it the wealthiest city in the British Empire, is well documented. Glaswegians often quote that the Clyde made Glasgow and Glasgow made the Clyde, and, sure enough, it was the rebirth of the city's river area from an abandoned dockyard district to a suave new strip, embodying Glasgow chic that radically redefined the Scottish metropolis. The roster of new Riverside attractions, added since the late 80s, includes the SEC Centre, Scotland's largest exhibition space, and the striking Riverside Museum, telling the story of Glasgow through a varied transport collection and other exhibits, and now one of the nation's top paid-for visitor attractions. Combined domestic and foreign city tourism, despite the COVID pandemic, rose to 2.65 million in 2022, from 2.5 million in 2019. Other locations like Hull, Plymouth and Blyneau Festiniog in Wales were named on the list. Hull was praised for emboldening its maritime magic and for being able to silence critics in recent years with efforts to improve the town. Blino Fistiniog was also noted for transforming itself from the centre of a slate industry to a thrill-seeking paradise. That article was written by Andrew Smart. This is from The National on Friday the 12th of January 2024, from the news section. Hootie. UK launches targeted strikes on rebel sites in Yemen. This article is written by Adam Robertson. 
The UK has launched targeted strikes against military facilities used by Houthi rebels in Yemen, with Rishi Sunak saying the UK will always stand up for freedom of navigation and the free flow of trade. It marks the first time strikes have been launched against the group since it started targeting international shipping in the Red Sea late last year, and it vowed there would be retaliation. US President Joe Biden said US military forces, backed by the UK and supported by Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands, successfully conducted strikes against a number of targets in Yemen. Reacting to the news, a number of senior SNP figures have joined calls to recall Parliament as a result of the strikes. First Minister Hamza Yousaf said on Twitter, X, The UK does not have a good record of military intervention in the Middle East. It is therefore incumbent that Westminster is recalled, MPs briefed and allowed to debate and scrutinise any decision to pursue military action that the UK government is proposing. SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn also said MPs should be recalled, calling the situation complex and serious. Given the gravity of a developing and dangerous situations, it looks like a political misjudgment on Rishi Sunak's part. So what has Rishi Sunak said? Speaking early on Friday morning, the PM said, In recent months, the Houthi militia have carried out a series of dangerous and destabilising attacks against commercial shipping in the Red Sea, threatening UK and other international ships, causing major disruption to a vital trade route and driving up commodity prices. Their reckless actions are risking lives at sea and exacerbating the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Despite the repeated warnings from the international community, the Houthis have continued to carry out attacks in the Red Sea, including against UK and US warships just this week. This cannot stand. The United Kingdom will always stand up for freedom of navigation and the free flow of trade. He added, The Royal Navy continues to patrol the Red Sea as part of the multinational Operation Prosperity Guardian to further deter Houthi aggression, and we urge them to cease their attacks and take steps to de-escalate. So what about Keir Starmer? The Labour leader has said that he supports targeted strikes against Houthi rebels, but called for a statement to be made in Parliament at the first opportunity. Speaking to BBC Radio 5 Live, he said the action had his support and added, The government briefed me in a Cobra secure briefing last night about the action that was going to be taken that is now being taken. Clearly the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea have to be dealt with, their attacks on commercial shipping, attacks on important trade routes and putting civilians' lives at risk and therefore we do support this action. He said he thinks there should be a statement in Parliament to set out the justification, to set out the limits and the scope of the operation. That article was written by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Friday the 12th of January 2024. From the news section. Muslim flag full of excrement found at Scottish mosque site. This article is written by Neil Smith. 
A Muslim prayer flag filled with excrement has been dumped at the front door of the building earmarked to become a Scottish council area's first mosque. The Glasgow-based Al-Farouk Education and Community Centre, AFECC, bought the former baronry St John Church in Ardrossan in 2022. They have been fundraising since then to realise their plans to turn it into North Ayrshire's first mosque and centre for Muslims in the area. But on Saturday, January the 6th, Alan Bell from the neighbouring Scottish Centre for Personal Safety found a flag and excrement dumped on the former church's doorstep. He said, I thought the flag had fallen off the front door. As I picked it up to pin it back on the door, I noticed as I unravelled it that it was something more sinister. The prayer flag had a huge pile of excrement, either human or animal, smeared in the middle of it. It has obviously been thrown over the security fence, which surrounds the church, and had landed at the front door. Bell added, It beggars belief that some people are so full of hatred and racism that they think it is okay to do this, especially over the Christmas period, a time for goodwill towards all men. Our centre is also right next door and provides weekly personal safety and fitness classes for North Ayrshire's new Scot refugees, many of whom are Syrian Muslims who have fled persecution. How welcome do you think this will make them feel? It's shameful. The AFECC is a Glasgow-based charity which has become a pillar of the community and looks to spread and preserve the original teachings of Islam, as was known by the Salaf as Sali, the first generations of Muslims. Ayrshire's only mosque is currently located in Kilmarnock in East Ayrshire. AFECC say they are aiming to raise £100,000 for the urgent renovation which is required. Launching their fundraiser last year, a representative from the organisation said, Join us in being part of something special, putting together a place of prayer and community centre for the Muslims in Ardrossan and the general community. The appeal has so far raised more than £28,000 of their £150,000 needed to bring the building up to the required standard. The AFECC has been approached for comment. That article was written by Neil Smith. This is from The National on Friday the 12th of January 2024. From the Culture section. Scottish Highland Games, dating back to 1880s, disbanded. This article is written by Laura Pollock. A Scottish Highland Games, dating back to the 1880s, has been disbanded due to a lack of volunteers. The Cooper Highland Games Committee announced on Tuesday that after an appeal almost a year ago to find new volunteers for summer 2024, they were unable to find anyone, and the Games will be disbanded. Based in Fife, the Games were first launched in 1886 and were restarted in 1979. They have previously drawn big crowds as part of the region's Games summer circuit and featured a number of successful athletes in their early days, 
including Lindsay MacDonald, Liz McColgan and Yvonne Murray. In a statement on the game's Facebook page, the committee said, The committee of Cooper Highland Games regret to inform you that the games are now disbanded. Unfortunately, we have been unable to find anyone to take on the games and therefore we have taken the decision to close the games. We would like to thank all attendees, suppliers and supporters for their support over the last few years. The games were put on hold during the pandemic and again in 2022 and 2023 due to low volunteers. Since 1979, the games have donated out of their profits approximately £35,000 to different charities, organisations and to assist with the costs of athletes attending the Commonwealth Games. That article was written by Laura Pollock. This is from The National on Friday the 12th of January 2024 from the News section. Scottish police warn of fraudsters pretending to be officers. This article is written by Gregor Young. Scottish police have issued a scam alert warning the public of fraudsters pretending to be officers. The warning comes after people in the Lanarkshire area were targeted by scammers pretending to be police officers. People are reportedly being told that someone has stolen their bank card or ID and there is an ongoing fraud investigation. The scammers may even provide a false crime number. Officers warned that fraudsters were aiming to collect people's personal information or even convince them to hand over cash or belongings. Police said people should never be tempted to share anything personal with cold callers. If there is doubt, hang up and call 101, officers said. A statement from Police Scotland Lanarkshire branch said, Scam alert! We are urging people to stay vigilant against scammers pretending to be police officers following recent calls made to residents in the Lanarkshire area. Victims are being told that a fraud case is being investigated or that someone has their bank card and ID. On some occasions, they are being provided with a false crime number. The scammer aims to convince victims to part with their money, personal information or belongings. We remind you to be cautious and stop, think and tell. You should never share personal or financial information with cold callers. Police will never ask you to transfer money to another account, hand over cash or bank cards to a courier or pay a fine or fee over the phone. If someone calls you and you are unsure if they are a genuine police officer, ask for their name and shoulder number. Hang up the phone and wait at least five minutes in case the scammer is still on the line and then contact 101. More information on different scams and how to react is on the Police Scotland website. That article was written by Gregor Young. This is from The National on Monday 15th of January 2024 from the Politics section. HMRC issue response after Scottish residents given English tax codes. 
by Hamish Morrison. Scottish taxpayers have received an apology after they were wrongly given English tax codes when they moved into a new build estate in Midlothian, the National can reveal. HMRC has insisted the error will not affect the amount of income tax sent to the Scottish Government and those affected may have over or underpaid for the last financial year. The issue affected residents of a new-built Taylor Wimpey estate in Morris Wood, north of Pennycook, and the exact number of people affected is not known. The National was informed about the issue by a resident who did not wish to be identified. He has underpaid tax and said he would need to pay up extra £10 per month to make up the difference. The resident, who had moved from Edinburgh, said he was moved to make the issue public because he was concerned that the Scottish Government could have been shortchanged for income taxes collect north of the border if the problem was widespread. HMRC said the issue has now been resolved and that those affected have been contacted to inform them they either owe money or are due a tax rebate for overpaying. A Scottish tax code is identifiable because it has an S at the beginning. The resident who contacted the National said he noticed upon moving to the new estate that his tax code lacked this, which means HMRC would consider the tax as having been paid in England. Other people in the estate had found similar problems, he said. Depending on earnings, workers can pay more or less tax depending on where they live in Britain. Last year, working workers earning £27,850 would pay the same regardless of whether they lived in England or Scotland, according to the Chartered Institute of Taxation. Those earning less would pay less income tax in Scotland than in England, while those on higher incomes would pay more. A spokesperson for HMRC said, We've corrected the tax codes of residents from the estate and we apologise to those affected. Any overpaid or underpaid tax will be refunded or collected via PAYE as normal. People can check their code on the free HMRC app and online and if they think they're on the wrong tax code, they should tell us by using their online personal tax account. That article was by Hamish Morrison. This is from The National on Monday 15th of January 2024 from the Politics section. Scottish Prison Service Crown Immunity to be raised with Rishi Sunak by Steph Brown. Hamza Youssef is planning to raise the issue of the Scottish Prison Service or SPS still having Crown immunity with the Prime Minister amid a key fatal accident inquiry. The FAI is currently being carried out into the deaths of Katie Allen, 21, and William Lindsay, 16, who were found dead in their cells at Pullman Young Offenders Institution in 2018. The family's solicitor, Amer Anwar, wrote to Yousaf over the weekend to ask him why he had never taken steps to try and eradicate the archaic principle of crown immunity for the SPS, 
which means the organisation cannot be criminally prosecuted. But the Scottish Government has now confirmed Yousaf, who is a former Justice Secretary, will take up the issue with Sunak. However, Anwar said he had not yet received a reply from the First Minister and has expressed his disappointment that action has been confirmed to the media before him. Anwar wants Crown immunity, something he described as a shameful abuse of power, to be lifted so the SPS can be held accountable for failings under the Health and Safety Act. He said the rule is inconsistent with standards applied in police stations and mental health hospitals. The Scottish Government told The National, Our thoughts remain with the families of Katie Allen and William Lindsay and all those affected by the death of a loved one in custody. The safe treatment and mental health of people in custody is a key priority for Scotland's prisons, which care for people with higher levels of risk and vulnerability than the general population. While Crown immunity remains a reserved matter, the First Minister will personally raise the issue with the Prime Minister. The government has not yet set out any more detail on what Yousaf plans to say to Rishi Sunak, though the National has asked for more clarity. When he was Justice Secretary, he commissioned a review on mental health at Polmont and a review of the response to deaths in prison custody. Anwar has demanded more detail on what Yousaf plans to raise with the PM and has called on him to both respond to the families and make a statement in Parliament. On Katie's birthday last year, Mr Yousaf was asked to raise Crown immunity, but the families were simply ignored, Anwar told The National. Now, it would appear that the FM believes it is better to brief the media than respond directly to my letter on behalf of the families. On such an important issue, it is disappointing that the FM chooses to act in such a manner. We want detail on what exactly he intends to do. If the First Minister now agrees that there is a need for a change in the law on Crown immunity, then that is a welcome minimal step, but we will hold his feet to the fire to deliver. The decent and correct way for a First Minister to act would be to have respect for the families by responding to them and secondly to make a statement to Parliament. Lifting of Crown immunity is the only viable remedy for saving lives. The families asked for a full, detailed response to their demands for a lifting of Crown immunity, and they're entitled to it. Mr Lindsay, who had been in care repeatedly, died on October 7th, 2018, three days after being admitted as there was no space in a children's secure unit, despite a history of making attempts on his life. Last week, the FAI heard he was taken off suicide watch hours before he took his own life. Ms Allen, a student at Glasgow University, was found dead on June 4th, 2018, while she was serving a 16-month sentence for drink driving and causing serious injury by dangerous driving. That article was by Steph Braun. From the National, Monday the 15th of January, from the comment section 
Brewdog. Spirit of Punk certainly doesn't live on here. Article by Steph Payton, columnist. There's a lot of variation in what defines punk as a subculture. For many, it's a music scene defined by its challenges to authoritarianism and white supremacy. For others, it is jackbooted Nazi skinheads who should, in the words of the dead Kennedys, mate like a tree and fuck off. For all the things that punk can be, however, a £2 billion craft beer empire isn't one of them. So let's chat about Brewdog. We all know the story by now. A couple of lads starting out in their shed through sheer chutzpah and grit take on big beer only to emerge victorious. It's a classic origin story, and it probably even has some truth to it. But the full story is far less aspirational. Reports of a working culture of fear throughout the company. Allegations of inappropriate behaviour and abuses of power against one of the company's founders. And now, the decision to no longer pay the real living wage to new recruits that has brought the company back into the headlines and a CEO just back from a luxury trip abroad. Whatever aspirations towards being punk that Brewdog had had remain manufactured, and when you have lengthy articles in your defence being published in The Spectator, it's probably time to hang up that studied leather jacket. It's a symptom of the commodification and inshittification of all things under late-stage capitalism, where revolutionary is a concept as applicable to an ideology, as it is to the next generation of beer grooming products. Capitalism consumes its critiques, and so a social movement built along the principles of mutual aid and class consciousness becomes an edgy aesthetic to sell beer, an immersive punk experience without the danger of getting curb stomped for supporting American interventionism in the Middle East. Brewdog's inauthentic punk identity is part of the contemporary trend to commodify minority group interests, without upholding the ideals they are selling. It's a facade that lets doing things punk look an awful lot like doing things the way that every other billion dollar business does. Okay, big whoop, big business does what it can to make more money. Not exactly a breaking news revelation, but all the same, it hollows out the world. We'd all be better off if more of us found our principles in punk ideologies, better than the hyper-capitalist hustle culture that encourages poor working practices a more podcast than any human being could reasonably listen to. Brewdog is not punk, yet that is a charge that has been levied against them time and time again. Former staff have described a culture of fear in the company. They have made claims of bullying and been treated like objects. Growth at all costs was, according to an open letter signed by former employees, the driving force behind Brewdog's explosive growth. And if that meant cutting corners on health and safety and creating a toxic environment to work in, so be it, allegedly. In another case in the United States, four former employees said they had been fired from a Brewdog bar for being LGBTQ+. Management reportedly cited a changing culture as the reason for their termination, though Brewdog later denied that was the reason. It's like watching an engineer paste six Sex Pistols posters over the cracks of a crumbling building, then declaring it safe and beckoning you in. Brewdog obviously isn't alone in this. There are myriad companies that hide abusive working practices behind annual pride collections and brutally wreck the natural world while sponsoring art exhibits. But there's something about the faux adoption of countercultural iconography to sell mediocre beer that really catches a nerve for me. I felt it profoundly, too, at the end of watching Withriel and I years ago. Having returned from their holiday by mistake, 
The film's protagonists discover Danny in their flat who, having conversed for a while, dejectedly declares, They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. The greatest decade in the history of mankind is over, and we have failed to paint it black. It speaks to a feeling of dread that it is inevitable that all challenges to the status quo will, in the end, be reduced to a children's Halloween costume on sale in a collapsing department store or a marketing gimmick for craft beer. Or, to speak more plainly, dread that this is it, and future challenges will fail. That's also what I feel when I look at Brewdog. I see the status quo wrapped in a grunge aesthetic, and the promise of more of the same. Capitalism sells itself as the only viable economic theory and way of doing things, and we know it likes to enforce that myth with great shows of strength. But there are better alternatives. The clothes and the music might change, but the underlying principles that built them will will live long past their inevitable consumption into capitalism. The ideals of punk live on, even if Johnny Rotten did end up doing butter commercials. And that piece was by Steve Payton. The National, recorded on Monday 15th of January 2024. The Culture Section. Countdown star Susie Dent spotlights absolutely perfect Scots Worth by Ross Hunter, multimedia journalist. Celebrity etymologist and lexicographer Susie Dent has been praised for sharing an absolutely perfect Scottish word. Dent, best known as the adjudicator in Dictionary Corner on the Channel 4 game show Countdown, frequently shares some of her favourite words on X, stroke Twitter. Taking note of the cold winter weather, Dent decided to spotlight the Scots word Hurkle Durkle. She said, for anyone who hasn't heard it, to Hurkle Durkle from 19th century Scots, is to linger under the covers of a warm bed long after it's time to get up. After sharing the word, many chimed in to say they would be taking part in some hurkle durkling themselves as Scotland prepares for freezing temperatures over the weekend. Severely underutilised word, said one, while another added, me for the whole of January. It comes after Scotland welcomed Susie Briggs as the new Scots Screever. Throughout her residency, she will promote Galloway Scots across the country and produce original work in the language by Ross Hunter, The National, recorded on Monday, 15th of January 2024, The Culture Section. Exclusive interview, Scottish theatre company used Ragnarok myth to explore climate crisis, by Nan Sport, journalist. It's a story that inspired Marvel's third Thor blockbuster, and now a multi-award winning Scottish theatre company is using the Nordic myth of Ragnarok to explore global crises like climate breakdown. The decision to base the new play in the story was made by Tortoise in a Nutshell back in 2017, just before the movie Thor Ragnarok came out. Seven years in the making, the theatre production is almost cinematic at times and incorporates around 400 handcrafted clay figures, which will be brought to life in stages around Scotland next month. However, while the Marvel movie depicts the prophesied destruction of Asgard, portrayed by St Abbs in Berwickshire, The new production from the Edinburgh-based theatre company uses the gods as a metaphor for global crises. We're exploring elements of the same source, but if I had a budget like the Marvel film, I'd probably be terrified, co-director Alex Bird told the Sunday National. Having said that, he's grateful for the support of Creative Scotland's touring fund, which is making it possible for the production to appear in venues across the country. The fund is for pieces of work that are really accessible for people to come and see, and there is a huge participation project wrapping around this, with lots of workshops and discussions, said Bird. 
We're trying to build up connections with people over a long time rather than just turn up to do a show then leaving. He said the company chose the Ragnarok story for inspiration because the Nordic myth cycle has a strong connection to the natural world, appropriate in a time of climate crisis. In the Ragnarok myth, there is a catastrophic series of natural disasters, but the world survives to be repopulated by two human survivors. While it's a story about cataclysm, it's also a story about renewal and the cyclical nature of life, said Bird. It's easy to despair about the climate crisis, but Bird said alongside co-creator Aaron Howey, they had been inspired by the endurance of people who had gone through extreme circumstances. Really big global events can seem so out of our control, so we felt it was important for us to explore work that gives people a chance to think about not only how they are part of the global community, but also how individual acts are important, as they can have consequences and impacts, said Bird. Our lives are not meaningless, we're not purely at the whims of the circumstances in which we live. There is a risk of falling into despair when we talk about the climate crisis, which makes sense because it is such a huge point of crisis, but we're advocating for the individual and the community. It's a story about cataclysm, so there's a lot to it that is dark, but our hope is that the message people take away is about enduring and not giving up hope in the darkest of moments. We want people to come away and talk about what they've seen. Our real strength is to inspire people's imaginations. Ragnarok will receive its world premiere at the McRobert Arts Centre in Stirling in February, before an Edinburgh premiere as part of the 17th edition of Manipulate Festival. It will then tour across Scotland and is being presented in association with Norway's Figure Teatre in Nordland. Bird said, It's been such a lot of hard work for a lot of people over a long time, but we love what we are making. By Anne Sport. From the National, Tuesday the 16th of January, News. Kirk urges Scottish MPs to reject Rwanda Bill. The moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland has urged the country's MPs to reject the Rwanda Bill. In a letter to all 59 Scottish MPs, the Right Reverend Sally Foster Fulton hit out at the bill, which would declare Rwanda as a safe country for asylum seekers to be sent to, despite an earlier ruling by the Supreme Court. The Safety of Rwanda, Asylum and Immigration Bill, will be debated in Westminster this week. In her letter, Foster Fulton said that Kirk is appalled that the UK government has sought to change the law rather than addressing the material concern raised. She wrote, We have built a reputation as a world leader when it comes to upholding and championing human rights. This bill threatened to destroy that reputation, reducing our ability to speak with any credibility on injustices and human rights abuses across the world. It also sets a worrying precedent that fundamental human rights can be eroded and denied to some. She said people in churches across Scotland have expressed fear and anxiety that they will be deported to Rwanda, leaving them in a place of uncertainty. She added, this legislation will only lead to more detentions, more deportations and an ongoing environment of hostility and mistrust. Let us instead direct our focus on solutions that support refugees and asylum seekers, many of whom are fleeing persecution and war. A Home Office spokesperson said, We have worked closely with the Rwandan government to address the Supreme Court's findings directly with the new Rwanda Treaty, binding in international law, and have also introduced the Safety of Rwanda Bill. Rwanda has a strong history of providing protection to those that need it, hosting over 135,000 asylum seekers who have found sanctuary there. It is a safe country, 
that cares deeply about supporting refugees and their safety of Rwanda bill will make this absolutely clear in UK law. And that article was unattributed. From the National, Tuesday the 16th of January, from the Politics section, Labour Council leader called out for hypocrisy. Switching stands over council tax increases. Article written by Steph Braun and read by me, Ian. A Labour Council leader has been called out for being hypocritical on council tax after a picture emerged of him campaigning against increases in a by-election while he has since complained about the freeze. Stephen McCabe, leader of Inverclyde Council, was pictured campaigning against council tax heights with fellow councillor and Labour's general election candidate for Inverclyde, Martin McCluskey, in Rutherglen last year. But since then, McCabe has written to First Minister Hamza Yousaf to question the logic of the council tax freeze, which was announced by Yousaf at the SNP party conference in October and confirmed in the Scottish budget last month. Chris McElhinney, General Secretary of the ALBA party and a former Inverclyde councillor, said that it is hypocritical for Labour to be suggesting South Lanarkshire residents shouldn't see their council tax increased while arguing people in Inverclyde should. He has now urged McCluskey to come clean on his stance ahead of this year's general election. McElhinney said, You could be forgiven for concluding that Labour Party must think people in Inverclyde button up at the back. Last year, Sir Keir Stammer was promising an English-only council tax freeze and it was to be prepared for by a windfall tax in Scotland's North Sea oil and gas. Meanwhile, in Inverclyde, Labour councillors are saying that our council tax must go up but they spent the end of last summer in Rutherglen telling people that a vote for Labour would be a vote against making people pay more council tax, and now there's even a picture of them doing it. Labour's general election candidate Martin McCluskey was happy to campaign against increases to council tax in South Lanarkshire, so why should council tax have to increase for hard-working people in Inverclyde? I'm therefore calling on him to come clean and tell people in Inverclyde what his position is. McKellany has been campaigning for a council tax freeze in Inverclyde and said there is an opportunity to give people give a break to people who are really struggling in the upcoming council budget. In a letter to USAF in November, McCabe said, The elected members of Inverclyde Council wish me to raise our significant concerns around both the announcement of the freeze and its implications it has for the council's budget and the residents of Inverclyde. We believe that locally elected councillors should have the freedom to balance local tax raising decisions and levels of local service delivery. In the case of Inverclyde Council, it raises approximately 10 times more income than all the fees and charges combined. Therefore, by removing our ability to raise council tax, the only option for the council to balance its budget in a sustainable manner is further cuts to council services. In the Scottish Budget, Ministers have made available a further £144 million to enable local authorities to freeze council tax rates at their current levels, which is equivalent to an above-inflation 5% rise. McCluskey said, The Labour Party campaign in Rutherglen opposed the SNP's proposals for an increase of over 20% in council tax for many people. This was a campaign that we won, and the SNP scrapped their plans, potentially saving people in Inverclyde hundreds of pounds. The SNP's announcement of a council tax freeze, without any idea of how they would pay for it, has led us to where we are now with councils facing massive cuts. Inverclyde Council is currently consulting with the public on the budget for next year. I'd encourage everyone who cares about the future of their services to respond to that consultation. He added, 
The latest intervention from Chris McKellen is the kind of disingenuous rubbish that puts people off politics. McCabe responded, Mr McKellen's claim that I campaigned against heights to council tax in one part of Scotland during an election, but will be supporting council tax increases in my own backyard, is entirely false. The Labour Party leaflet in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, which I had no role in writing, was highlighting the Scottish Government's proposals at that time to increase council tax for households in band E to H by 7.5% and 22.5% in 2024, before any local increase was applied by councils. And that article was by Steph Braun. From the National, Tuesday the 16th of January, from the news section, Scotch whisky boosts UK economy by £7.1 billion. Article by Jim McLeod. The Scotch whisky industry brought £7.1 billion into the UK economy in 2022, a report has said. The Scotch Whisky Association, SWA, the trade body for the sector, said that the gross value added, GVA, of whisky in 2022 had increased by 29% since 2018. The industry is worth £5.3 billion to Scotland alone, equating to around 3% of total GVA. The drink amounted to 77% of Scotland's food and drink exports and 26% for the UK overall. Mark Kent, SWA Chief Executive, said the report once again proven its economic significance to the UK. He added, The past five years have been turbulent for our sector. We face retaliatory tariffs in the US in addition to the pandemic and the knock-on economic pressures. The Scotch whisky industry has remained resilient, with capital investment directed towards fulfilling our collective sustainability ambitions, creating world-class visitor attractions, and building more distilleries that will help boost jobs and growth. Ahead of the UK's spring budget on March the 6th and this year's general election, it is vital that the industry is supported by government so that businesses can continue to invest in the UK economy. Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack welcomed the report, praising the vital importance of the sector to Scotland. He claimed, The UK government wholeheartedly supports the industry, Scotch is not just Scotland's but the UK's most valuable food and drink export and that's why we've given it 10 cuts or freezes in duty at the last 11 budgets as well as removing punitive tariffs imposed by the US market. We are pushing forward with new and robust global trade agreements that will continue to safeguard the interest of Scotch whisky. Scotch whisky supports 66,000 jobs across the UK with 41,000 in Scotland. In the past decade, 24,000 jobs have been created, the report said. Scotland's Wellbeing Economy Secretary Neil Gray said the industry is extremely valuable to the country, adding, Scotch whisky is a world-renowned brand and our leading single food and drink export product. Continued growth in global markets means more jobs and investment across Scotland, our communities benefit and it entices visitors and residents to experience the incredible offer we have here in Scotland. The Scottish Government will continue to work with the whisky sector to drive further growth and success. And that article was by Jane McLeod. From the National, Tuesday the 16th of January, from the news section, Sunak pressed on how far he is willing to go after Yemen strikes, PM would not hesitate to protect shipping, 
article by Hamish Morrison. Rishi Sunak has defended failing to consult the House of Commons before launching airstrikes on Houthi rebels in Yemen as he faced MPs for the first time since the UK intervention. SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn demanded to know what the Prime Minister's strategy was and questioned how far he is willing to go in attacking the Islamist group. RAF and US jets, ships and submarines launched attacks on Yemen on Friday, sparking anger the Commons had not been consulted on military action. Both America and the UK have said the attacks on the Houthi rebels came in retaliation for their attacks on international shipping vessels. The Houthis have said their attacks were in solidarity with Palestinians, who have been under siege by Israel since October, with more than 24,000 people killed. The Prime Minister told MPs that the UK had destroyed some 13 planned targets, adding, We have seen no evidence thus far of civilian casualties, which we took great care to avoid. News agency Reuters reported last week, explosions have been seen near military bases close to airports in the capital, Sana, and Yemen's third city, Taiz. The agency also reported explosions have been confirmed by witnesses at Yemen's main Red Sea port, Hoydaida, and military sites in the coastal Haja governorate. Sunak added, The need to maximise the security and effectiveness of the operation meant that it was not possible to bring this matter to the House in advance. But we took care to brief members before the strikes took place, including you of course Mr Speaker, and the Leader of the Opposition, and have come to the House at the earliest possible opportunity. The SNP were among those to demand Parliament be recalled over the weekend to debate the strikes. Flynn used his contribution to raise the spectre of possible military interventions against the Houthis. If, as has been suggested through their actions in the last 12 hours or so, the message which we sought to send has not been received, then what do we intend to do? asked Flynn. What is the plan? What is the Prime Minister's strategy? Will he come to the dispatch box and... Unlike his predecessors in relation to the Middle East conflicts in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, lay out when and how far he is willing to go in relation to military action. Flynn also warned of the risk the conflict could escalate further, risking greater regional instability. He rejected the Houthis' narratives that their attacks were linked to Israel's bombardment of Gaza, but added, We cannot escape the fact that a ceasefire in Gaza is essential for that wider region regional stability, and he criticised the Prime Minister for failing to recall the House to debate the strikes, saying, it is what the public would have expected. Sunak said he would not speculate on Britain's future involvement in Yemen, adding, what we conducted was intended as a single limited action, but he added that he would not stop, not hesitate to protect merchant ships, many of which were rerouted by thousands of miles to avoid the Red Sea, where the Houthis were targeting ships. Sunak added, We should also recognise the risks of inaction, because doing nothing would be absolutely weaken international security and the rule of law. Labour leader Keir Starmer said he backed the Prime Minister for taking action against the Houthis, but claimed they could also bring risks. While Labour said over the weekend the party understood why the Commons had not been consulted on the initial strikes, Starmer added, Can the Prime Minister confirm that he stands by the, the Parliamentary Convention that... Where possible, military interventions by the UK government, particularly if they are part of a sustained campaign, should be brought before this House. Sunak replied, I can assure him that it was necessary to strike at speed 
I see it knowledge to protect the security of these operations. That is in accordance with the Convention, and I remain committed to that Convention, and would always look to follow appropriate processes and procedures, and also act in line with precedent, where, will it, where he will know there have been strikes in 2015 and 2018, where a similar process of this was followed. And that article was by Hamish Morrison. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 16th of January, news. Tory MPs demand action after Lineker calls for international football ban in Israel. Article by Adam Robertson. A number of Conservative MPs have demanded the BBC takes action against Gary Lineker after he retweeted a call for Israel to be banned from international football amid the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. The Match of the Day presenter reposted a statement on X slash Twitter from a pro-Palestinian campaign calling for Israel to be removed from all global football tournaments until it ends grave violations of international law. Israeli clubs compete in a number of UEFA competitions, including the Champions League, and the national side is in the running to qualify for this summer's European Championships in Germany. The specific tweet Lineker reposted was from the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. It included a statement from the Palestinian Football Association, which called upon FIFA and the International Olympic Committee, IOC, to join all regional and global sporting bodies in sanctioning Israel. Similar measures were introduced following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with debates sparked when Russian and Belarusian tennis players were barred from playing in Wimbledon in 2022. The statement from the campaign group demanded international sporting bodies take an urgent stance towards Israel's grave violations of human rights and subject it to legal accountability measures. It went on to demand the public and officials pressure FIFA and the IOC to suspend Israel's membership and ban it from international tournaments and games until it ends its grave violations of international law, particularly its apartheid rule in the crime of genocide that is perpetrating in Gaza. The news follows last week's action at the International Court of Justice where South Africa brought its genocide case against Israel. A number of Conservative MPs hit out at Lineker for his comments, including the party's Deputy Chairman, Lee Anderson. Anderson said, License fee peers are fed up of footing the bill for Lineker's musings on international politics. It's about time BBC bosses decided whether Gary's right-on rubbish is in keeping with our social media rulebook. Elsewhere, MP Andrew Percy commented, Gary Lineker is an ill-informed, ignorant commentator in the Middle East. The BDS movement, to boycott Israel, is a racist, anti-Semitic campaign and nobody who receives taxpayers' money working in the BBC should be endorsing a campaign that is widely understood to promote Jew hate. Percy continued, there, is, there has to be a line where the BBC has to intervene. And him, Lineker, endorsing a racist campaign, which is what the BDS group is widely understood to be, Surely must be a new law if they're going to allow him to get away with that. Former Cabinet Minister Stephen Crabb said, This is a deeply inappropriate tweet for any BBC figure to endorse, and especially for someone of Lineker's prominence. And Tory backbencher North, North Jonathan Gillis said, Hamas harms the people they claim to represent, stealing aid off the people of Gaza, using innocent Gazans as human shields and throwing LGBT plus people off buildings. All this whilst our leaders live a life of luxury in Qatar. We wait for international diplomat and foreign policy expert, Gary Lineker, 
to call this out soon. Lineker was previously forced to step back from his presenting duties on Match of the Day after likening then Home Secretary Sula Bravman's rhetoric on migrants to that of 1930s Germany. And that article was by Adam Robertson. The National, recorded on Tuesday 16th of January 2024, the Culture Section. Alan Cumming discusses playing Brian Cox's brother in Scottish distillery drama. By Adam Robertson, multimedia journalist. Scottish actor Alan Cumming has discussed his role in a new film directed by Brian Cox about two estranged brothers who are reunited after 40 years. The new drama, titled Glenrothen, will be set in a fictional distillery town of the same name and will see Cox make his debut as director. It will see two brothers, Cumming and Cox, who have not spoken since a violent exchange with their father on the day of their mother's funeral attempt to put aside their differences to try save the family-owned distillery. Filming is due to take place in Glasgow and in Cummings' native Perthshire, including Aberfeldy, the town where he grew up. Succession star Cox has been developing the film with Scottish writer David Ashton, creator of McLevy, a radio drama series about a fictional 19th century Edinburgh detective. Speaking to the Scotsman, Cummings said, my character has gone away to find a new life in America and the other brother has stayed in Scotland to run the family business. They have a troubled relationship and there is family strife. Brian is directing and playing the somewhat older brother. I'll be growing a beard which I always do when I feel that I have to look older. It is a lovely script so I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be filming in and around Aberfeldy, ironically as I was born there and I'm the patron of the cinema there. When Glenrothen was first announced more than two years ago, Cox said, Glenrothen is my homage to the elements that make Scotland such an extraordinary country, where vibrancy and majesty of the land is expressed through passion and desire, balanced by the Scots' deep-rooted humour and grasp of the absurd. He previously described his character as the boring one in an interview last year. I do boring rather well, actually. My character is not well, so he asks his brother to go back, but he ignores him. Then his daughter sort of kidnaps him and brings him back to Scotland, and the adventure begins. By Adam Robertson, The National, recorded on Tuesday, 16th of January 2024. The Culture Section. Poor Things, director responds to row over divisive change from Alistair Gray book. By Adam Robertson, multimedia journalist. The director of Poor Things, an adaptation of Scottish author Alistair Gray's 1992 novel, has addressed the controversy surrounding the film's setting. Despite the novel being set in Glasgow, where Grey is originally from, the film is predominantly set in London and across various places in Europe, with no mention of the Scottish city. Starring Emma Stone in the lead role, the film tells the story of Bella Baxter, a Victorian woman brought back to life by scientist Godwin Baxter, Willem Dafoe, before she runs off across the continents with lawyer Duncan Wedderburn, Mark Ruffalo, Yorgos Lanthimos responds to controversy as setting from original Alistair Grey novel removed. Speaking to Little White Lies magazine, director Yorgos Lanthimos was asked about the decision to change the film's main setting to London. Well, I think Alistair probably wouldn't be very happy about that, because he was a very proud Scotsman, he said. But we give Godwin Baxter some of his character in a Scottish accent. Alistair was also a great inspiration for Willem Dafoe as a presence, so we filtered that through him. In the novel, the Scottish issue feels like a different part of the book, 
and I felt it would just be like trying to make two different films if I tried to put it into this version of the story. Once we decided that the point of view of the film was going to be Bella's, and it was going to be her story and her journey, and working with an American cast, it just made more sense to contract things. The film has so far been met with critical acclaim and picked up two Golden Globes earlier this month. It is widely tipped to receive a number of Oscar nominations when they are announced at the end of January. Former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon was among those to weigh in on the change of setting, previously saying she was curious to see how it turned out following her re-reading of the original novel by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of January. Arctic blast brings coldest January in 14 years. An article written by James Walker. The Met Office has issued a warning as an Arctic blast is set to bring the coldest January temperatures in 14 years to Scotland. Freezing temperatures and snow will continue for much of Britain this week because of cold Arctic air before wet and windy weather sweeps in over the weekend. More than 100 schools were closed in Scotland on Tuesday, while drivers faced difficult conditions thanks to the wintry weather across northwest England, including Merseyside, Cheshire and in Cumbria. Yellow weather warnings for snow and ice are in place across Scotland, much of northern England and parts of North Wales until Thursday, and then more mild temperatures are forecast along with wind and rain. A cold plunge of Arctic air has moved south across the whole country over the past few days, making temperatures 5 to 6 degrees Celsius lower than usual for this time of year, the Met Office has said. Forecasters predict temperatures could plunge as low as minus 15 degrees Celsius in places on Tuesday night. More than 40 centimetres of snow could be seen on high ground in northwest Scotland by the end of Friday, as it continues to build up over the coming days, the Met Office added. Meanwhile, lower ground in northwest Scotland could see between 5 and 10 centimetres of snow by the end of the working week. And while unlikely, there is a chance of a few centimetres of snow falling on the extreme south of England this week. The Met Office is reviewing the situation and any new warnings could be issued at short notice, it said. The weekend will be milder, but westerly weather will bring wind and rain and the potential for more weather warnings as the snow melts. Stephen Dixon, a spokesman for the Met Office, said We've seen a fair bit of snow already and more's expected in coastal areas, the north of Scotland, northwest England and in southwest Scotland. It will be a continuing theme through much of this week. He added, Towards the weekend, it's looking like we will return to a more westerly influence, so wet and windy as you get to Friday, and it will bring the temperatures up slightly. As you get towards Saturday, you could see maximum temperatures of 11 degrees Celsius in the southwest of England, which is much milder than what we've seen of late. By Sunday, we could see quite a deep area of low pressure moving in, which will bring strong winds and heavy rain. The additional hazards will be snow melting and rainfall on Sunday. The government has confirmed that thousands of households in England and Wales are now eligible for cold weather payments. They're made to vulnerable people, including pensioners, to help them pay for heating when the temperature dips below freezing. 
The payments go to those living in an area where the average temperature is recorded as or forecast to be zero degrees Celsius or below over seven consecutive days. National Rail has warned the wintry weather could affect train journeys all week, with ScotRail saying services on the Highland mainline route could be delayed by around 30 minutes. Met Office Chief Meteorologist Andy Page said there will be widespread frost this week and we could see some fairly deep lying snow in parts of the northern UK and strong winds could result in drifting or blizzard conditions at times. The snow and ice will be disruptive and could potentially impact travel plans, make driving dangerous and pavements slippery. An article written by James Walker. The National News on Wednesday the 17th of January. Fares on Edinburgh to London trains to be simplified. An article written by Joe Sullivan. Fares for travel between Edinburgh and London are set to be simplified as part of a bid to boost passenger numbers. Train operator LNER is set to launch a pilot scheme that will almost halve the number of available ticket types for all trips between London and Edinburgh, Berwick and Newcastle. Running for two years, the trial will drop the number of standard fares available to purchase from seven to three. The advance ticket, renamed Fixed, will remain in place, as will the Anytime Day ticket, renamed Fully Flexible. A new ticket, called Semi-Flexible, will be introduced, allowing passengers to travel on their scheduled train or any other LNER service 70 minutes before or after their booking. Meanwhile, first-class tickets will drop from four options to three, using the same three ticket types as standard fares. Dynamic pricing has also been introduced to encourage more people to travel by rail. Tickets will become more or less expensive depending on how popular the service is, incentivising people to travel at less popular times. The new fares were launched on Tuesday for travel from Monday, February 5th onwards. Alex Robertson, chief executive at independent transport watchdog Transport Focus, hailed the changes, saying the plan to trial demand-based pricing on some LNER routes is a radical change for passengers. Transport Focus strongly supports fares reform and its right to trial new ideas to see if they will work. We look forward to hearing how the trial progresses and will be monitoring that it does indeed deliver better value for money tickets for passengers. However, some observers have had doubts about the new scheme, raising concerns about losses in flexibility that scrapping off-peak fares will cause. Former railway manager Mark Smith, who runs the Man in Seat 61 travel blog, wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, The existing off-peak fare is refundable, can be used on any operator and via any permitted route. It has a fixed price, so you always know what to expect, even if you plan to buy on the day. Good for any off-peak train all day, can be bought on the day at that fixed known price. It's being replaced from February with a new advanced fare that is non-refundable, LNER only, direct route only, dynamically priced and only good for a two-hour, 20-minute time slot. That represents a significant reduction in flexibility. 
Mr Smith also suggested that travellers looking to buy off-peak tickets between Edinburgh and London should book tickets to and from Haymarket, as journeys starting and ending there will still use the old ticketing system. LNER Managing Director David Horn said, LNER remains at the forefront of rail reform. Simplifying fares is vital in making rail travel more effective. Customers tell us they find fares confusing. This exciting new pilot is the next step in our plans to overhaul complicated and outdated ticketing options, and we look forward to hearing feedback from our customers. We believe that making fares simpler, smarter and fairer, while introducing value for money and modern flexibility, will encourage more people to choose to travel by rail, the most sustainable travel choice. Rail Minister Hugh Merriman said, We are delivering on our commitment to reform the railways, working with operators to provide passengers with simpler and more flexible tickets that better suit their needs. Simplifying fares is amongst the proposed tasks for Great British Railways, or GBR, a planned new public sector body to oversee the railways. GBR was initially due to be launched early this year, but the required legislation has not been passed and no timeline has been set out by the UK government. Stuart Fox Mills, Programme Director for Fares, Ticketing and Retail at the Great British Railways Transition Team, said... It's great to see this next step in the simplification of rail fares. This pilot will move the dial towards simpler and better fares for customers. An article written by Joe Sullivan. The National, on Wednesday the 17th of January. Opinion. GB News left red-faced as Barb reveals real New Year's viewing figures. Your National Diary... Written by The Joker. GB News has been left majorly red-faced, and no, we don't mean that Andrew Neil has rejoined its lineup. Instead, it turns out that a major New Year's viewership milestone for the TV home of arch-unionist Neil Oliver was actually a bit of a damp squib. In the days following our Hogmanay parties up and down the land, GB News was crowing, understandably, about figures from Barb, which measures TV audiences. It had found that more than one million viewers tuned into GB News simultaneously as we entered 2024, as reported by the Press Gazette. The channel's live programming on the night was hosted by comedian Andrew Doyle. At this point, you might be think alarm bells would be ringing. One million people bringing in the bells with Andrew Doyle. But as any true fan of GB News will know, the technology in the newsroom often seems to go awry. The bells were silent. And so all that was heard instead was the sound of keyboards click-clacking away as the news stories went out the next day. A huge viewership milestone for GB News. The first time it had reached that audience accolade since when it was first launched and many of us tuned in out of morbid curiosity. The Joker is guilty, as charged. So what's the reality? It's certainly not that one million people were watching. In fact, it's not even that a 100,000 were watching. Barb has now revealed that GB News averaged 33,000 viewers for its Hogmanay fireworks coverage. Not quite a million. So how did the error happen? Barb told the Press Gazette, 
The New Year's Eve fireworks were broadcast across several channels with very similar audio feeds. Barb's ability to report which channel is being viewed relies partly on matching the audio output from television sets to a channel. In this instance, our audio matching process has incorrectly attributed some viewing of the New Year's Eve fireworks to GB News that should have been attributed to BBC One and other channels. Journalists and numbers. Never a good combo. A column written by The Joker. The National Politics on Wednesday the 17th of January. Shona Robeson hits out at media intrusion into her holiday. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. Deputy First Minister Shona Robeson has hit back at intrusion into her private life after she came under scrutiny for a three-day ski resort break over the festive period. The Finance Secretary was criticised by the Tories for taking a holiday in the French Alps after delivering a tough budget that saw cuts to housing and tax rises for high earners. The Scottish Conservatives accused Ms Robeson of living it up and being tone-deaf after it emerged she had taken a three-day trip with her daughter. Rooms at the Heliopic Hotel and Spa in Chamonix, said to be a favourite retreat for celebrities including actor George Clooney, can cost up to £520 per night. But Ms Robeson insisted she got a very good last-minute deal on the break and hit out at criticism of her holiday plans hitting the headlines. Reports of her Christmas break emerged in the Sunday Mail at the end of December. Ms Robeson has now spoken out about the reports for the first time. In an interview with Hollywood magazine, she said, I don't get much time with my daughter and I went on a short three-night break that I got a very good last-minute deal on. I decided that given I'd hardly seen much of my daughter due to the business of the budget and other government business, we had a very short family break. If we're going to start analysing where each of us goes on holiday, I think that's a poor place to be. If that's now up for grabs as a way of attacking each other, I don't think that does the body politic much good at all. We all make our own decisions about where we spend time with our family, and I did that in my own time with my own money. It shouldn't be the subject of intrusion, but it is what it is. Ms Robeson also defended her decision to raise taxes for high earners and the council tax freeze announced by First Minister Hamza Youssef at the SNP's conference in October last year. The tax changes we made will affect 5% of taxpayers, the highest earners, she said. In tough times when we need to raise money for public services, a progressive tax system is based around those with the broadest shoulders paying a little bit more. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. The National Politics on Wednesday the 17th of January. Tourism tax passes first Holyrood test. An article written by James Walker. A new visitor levy in Scotland could be a force for good for the country's tourism industry, a minister has said. Public Finance Minister Tom Arthur spoke out as MSPs approved by 86 votes to 30 votes the general principles of a bill which would empower councils to introduce such a levy, also known as a tourist tax. If fully approved by Holyrood, the Visitor Levy Scotland Bill 
would allow local authorities to introduce a charge on overnight visitor stays, with the cash raised to be used to benefit tourists. Edinburgh Council has said it wants to be the first city in the UK to introduce the fee. And Mr Arthur told MSPs that the legislation will give councils a significant new power. He said 21 out of 27 EU countries already have some kind of visitor levy and they are commonplace in other locations throughout the world. I strongly believe that a visitor levy can be a force for good, supporting the visitor economy and bringing benefits to residents and businesses. Mr Arthur said that the government will consider calls from industry for the levy to be a flat-rate fee rather than a percentage of the accommodation cost. It will apply to those staying in hotels, hostels, bed and breakfasts, self-catering accommodation, campsites and caravan parks. Wild campers and people in motorhomes and campervans who pitch elsewhere will not be liable to pay it. Conservative MSP Murdo Fraser asked if the bill could be amended to include campervans, but Mr Arthur said that there would be significant issues with collecting this levy. Exemptions from the levy include homeless accommodation or those fleeing domestic abuse, the minister said. Tory Miles Briggs said his party will bring forward amendments at stage two to bring national exemptions into the scheme. He referred to legislation on short-term lets and said Parliament is developing a reputation for poorly drafted legislation. He said, We're opposed to the SNP Green government's plans to introduce this visitor levy bill. We believe this can have a real negative impact on industry, which has suffered, especially during the time of the pandemic. The Scottish Government agreed to bring forward the legislation as part of a budget deal agreed with the Greens in 2019, but the bill was delayed by the Covid pandemic. Speaking during the debate, Green MSP Ross Greer said, Tourism brings money into local economies, but councils see very little benefit from that. It's an entirely reasonable principle that the body providing public toilets, bin collections, leisure facilities and all sorts of other services which tourists make use of is able to recoup these costs. It's only fair that local residents aren't left picking up the bill. An article written by James Walker. The National, Thursday the 18th of January, from the news section. Hamza Yousaf addresses police probe into SNP finances on BBC podcast by Xander Eliards. Hamza Yousaf has addressed the police investigation into SNP finances, saying it clearly affected the public perception of the party. The First Minister said the inquiry has been one of the most difficult times for the SNP and that he must work hard to rebuild trust. Former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, her husband and former SNP Chief Executive Peter Murrell and then Party Treasurer Colin Beatty were arrested last year as part of the police investigation. All were released without charge pending further investigation. The arrest came as part of Police Scotland's Operation Branch Form, which is looking into what happened to around £600,000 raised by the party for independence campaigning. Yousaf told the political thinking with Nick Robinson Radio 4 podcast, the police investigation has been one of the most difficult times for the party. 
There's no ifs or buts or maybes about it. There has clearly been an impact in terms of how we were perceived by the public and issues of trust. And I've got to work hard, as I hope I have been doing over the last 10 months. I've got to work hard to make sure that people know, whatever the outcome of that police investigation is, that the SNP is a party that they can trust. It's been difficult, no doubt, for those involved, but difficult for us as a party, and it's certainly been a challenge for me in my first 10 months. Yousaf also spoke of the weeks that his parents-in-law were trapped in Gaza after the conflict broke out in October last year. They became trapped in the territory at the outbreak of hostilities following a trip to visit their relatives there. Elizabeth and Majed El Nakla from Dundee were eventually able to leave Gaza through the Rafa crossing. However, his brother-in-law remains trapped in the region while his partner, Nadia El Nakla, has pleaded with the Home Office to let him come to the UK. Yousaf told the podcast, The four weeks that my mother-in-law and father-in-law were in Gaza are probably the lowest point of my life and of Nadia's life. They were really difficult four weeks, precisely because day by day and night by night, we did not know if they were going to live or not. The SNP leader also said he has never really been comfortable with the fact that his party has the word national in its name because it can be misinterpreted. He said the party has worked hard to make it clear that it is a civic national party that believes it does not matter really where you came from. That was an article, Hamza Yousaf Addresses Police Probe into SNP Finances on BBC Podcast by Xander Eliard. This is from The National on Thursday 18th of January 2024 from the Culture Section. Celtic Connections Music Festival Opens in Glasgow by Lucy Jackson. More than 100,000 people are expected to attend this year's Celtic Connections Festival in Glasgow, which opened on Thursday for the 30th year. The renowned 18-day event will kickstart Scotland's annual cultural calendar and showcase Glasgow's UNESCO City of Music status and its role as the country's cultural powerhouse. Over the next two weeks, 1,200 artists will perform at over 300 events, lighting up 25 venues across the city with world-class performances and exclusive collaborations for what is the biggest winter music festival of its kind in Europe. It first began in 1994 when it offered 66 events in one venue. With a number of shows already sold out, organisers say they are anticipating around 110,000 attendees, making 2024 one of the biggest ever capacity programmes. The festival's programme covers everything from trad, folk, roots, Americana and jazz to soul, rock, orchestral, experimental and world music. The sold-out opening concert on Thursday evening will see the American Grammy winner Chris Tile 
referred to by Billboard magazine as the best mandolin player in the world. And we'll also welcome the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra to the stage, with guests including festival favourites Rachel Samani, Dreamer's Circus and Sarah Jaros. On January 20th, the trailblazing Scottish ensemble is set to join forces with American double bassist and composer Edgar Meyer, who will perform a set of Gaelic songs with the celebrated Scottish fiddler Donald Grant, award-winning Gaelic singer Misha McPherson, harpist and composer Ailey Robertson and renowned Olean piper Jarlath Henderson. Other acts to look forward to include Swedish folk ensemble Vasen, set to enchant audiences at Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum on 26th January, and Angelique Kijo, who will perform at the Glasgow Royal Concert Hall on January 29th. The festival is delivered by charity Glasgow Life as part of the city's annual cultural events programme. Organisers say they also aim to bring people together through dance. Several Cayleys have been planned, including a Cayley for Gordon, a night to celebrate the life and legacy of Tyree accordion tutor Gordon Connell, the RSCDS Cayley, which promotes Scottish country dance, and all related dance forms as inclusive, exciting activities that can be enjoyed by anyone, anywhere, and Ando Glasgow, set to take the Cayley format whilst introducing a Transylvanian dance element. There will also be a traditional burn supper on January 25th at Kelvin Grove Art Gallery, where attendees will be able to celebrate with much-loved Burns songs performed by the likes of Fiona Hunter, Sean Gray, Hannah Fisher, Soren McLean, and the Glasgow Chapel Choir, amongst other special guests. Donald Shaw, creative producer for Celtic Connections, said the festival has always been about uniting people through a shared love and appreciation of music and culture. Shaw continued, This year's lineup, one of our biggest and most ambitious to date, is packed with amazing talent from across Scotland and all over the world, reflecting just how far the festival has come over the past three decades and underlining our ambition to showcase music of all genres and backgrounds. I extend my heartfelt thanks to all those whose efforts have made this year's festival possible. Your support has allowed us to curate an exceptional event that represents the heart and soul of Celtic, folk, roots, jazz and world music. It's incredibly exciting to see proceedings kick off today. I know our musicians and everyone involved in the festival is ready to make this one a one to remember. If there is still a show you would like to see, I would urge you to buy yourself a ticket. You most certainly will not regret it. Christina McKelvey, Minister for Culture, Europe and International Development, said the festival speaks to the huge wealth of talent our country boasts. She said, Celtic Connections is an annual high point in the calendar, bringing artists and audiences from all corners of the globe together in Glasgow to celebrate the music of Scotland and our Celtic neighbours. 
This breadth of this year's festival programme speaks to the huge wealth of talent our country boasts and the superb worldwide reputation of this iconic festival. The Scottish Government is proud to continue our support for Celtic Connections with £101,000 this year through our Expo Fund, which seeks to raise the international profile of Scottish artists and help maximise opportunities for them at home and abroad. Celtic Connections 2024 takes place from January 18th to February 4th. A full programme and tickets are available online. That article was by Lucy Jackson. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and tell your friends about our service.